Happy New Year! Hey guys, welcome back to the Image Junkies podcast. I can't believe it's 2018 and I can't believe I'm up to episode 9. So thanks for your support. Please do leave reviews if you can, it really helps. Today we're talking with an inspirational chap, a good friend of mine called Glenn Middleton, who's been a cameraman with the BBC in South Africa for many, many years. He was here covering apartheid and the fall of apartheid and the violence that followed uh, the first sort of free and fair elections in South Africa. And he's been following the news in, in and across sub-Saharan Africa ever since. So I really enjoyed talking to Glenn today. And I won't waste your time talking about myself. Let's get straight into it. So Glenn, tell us, who are, who are you uh, and what do you do? I'm Glenn Middleton. Um, I'm a shoot editor or cameraman for the BBC. And I think my first day in the Bureau was uh, February of 1990. Uh, so, yeah, we go back a couple of years. Um, I've been working for the BBC, mostly covering Africa. Uh, obviously, prior to our um, democratic elections in 1994, uh, it was slightly more difficult as a South African to travel because of sanctions and things like that. Uh, so primarily it was uh, covering South Africa up to then, which was obviously a huge story under the um, the National Party, the apartheid system. And then um, slowly but surely, I think, um, you know, after the, the, the early 90s, we were able to travel and, you know, thereby um, a whole much broader or bigger patch became available to us to cover out of the Joburg Bureau. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we, we expanded our horizons and, and um, I guess, you know, ended up covering, you know, most of the continent, really. Well, um, you say February 1990. Uh, how come you're so specific? Do you remember what you were doing in February 1990? I guess uh, a lot of people have asked me, um, you know, when did you start? So I had to, you know, come up with some sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> direct answer to that. And uh, I think that that was the, the first, the first uh, salary check that I got from the BBC, which amounted to about uh, 75 US dollars in those days for a, for a day's work. So, <laughs> and it still is. <laughs> in fact, it's got worse. Uh, well, the other day we were talking and you were telling me the story of what you were doing before you joined the BBC and sort of how you got your foot in the door. Um, could you tell us a little bit, a little bit about that, about your time with SABC and so on? Yeah, well, um, well, I'll, I'll take it a little bit further back. Before I joined the SABC, the local broadcaster in South Africa, I was a snapper. I worked for a daily, a big daily in South Africa called the Rain Daily Mail, uh, which had a rather large black readership, which you can imagine the apartheid system didn't appreciate that. And so that we were probably the most harassed uh, newspaper out of all of them, although most journalists were harassed. Um, but basically... Um, yeah, I, I'd um, taken on a job at the SABC um, as, a, as a young learner cameraman and uh, had been out, you know, covering, you know, township upheaval and, and the violence and, and in particular the police brutality. Uh, and time after time I'd get back, um, you know, after often having risked our lives, you know, covering the violence. I'd get back, uh, get back home in the evenings thinking, wow, I want to, you know, sit back on the couch and and watch the footage and, and um, you know, see, see my footage go out on the telly. And uh, time and time again, uh, nothing was there. It was uh, basically the story wasn't mentioned, the pictures weren't used. 
And it was it was basically you know the, the whole propaganda machine you know uh, working well um, for the SABC in those days. And uh, I was I was in in the townships in Soweto and I was covering a funeral. Um, some some of the local comrades had been killed by police, um, and they were having a funeral. And the, the, the funeral procession had moved into the cemetery. Uh, the poor bearers were covering, covering the, the coffins on their shoulders. And once they were in, they started to sing um, freedom songs, which in those days were illegal. And in particular, uh, in Kosi Sikileli, Africa. Which um, is now the national anthem. It is now the national anthem, exactly. And um, once the security forces heard the, um, the, the, the songs, they they just let rip with uh, rubber bullets, tear gas, and and even live ammunition. Um, the foreign media that were in the area uh, obviously um, were, were covering what was going down, and um, under the state of emergency powers, it gave uh, the security police um, basically superpowers to arrest, harass, uh, and confiscate um, photographic material, filming material. And even to such an extent on that particular day, I remember them laying down a bunch of television news cameras and driving over them in a huge big security vehicle, armored personnel carriers. Just crushing and them. And just crushing the cameras. And um, But uh, funnily enough, they left me alone, I guess, uh, realizing or, or knowing that I was working for the SABC. I was with um, one of their uh, top um, news um, journalists on the day and they recognized him and they they probably thought oh well we, we'll leave those guys alone because they're one of us mm. and um, uh, and basically uh, cut a long story short I took that footage um, that I had filmed of the police brutality on the day the beating and harassing of foreign journalists and local journalists um, I got back to the SABC and instead of the normal procedure of dropping the cassette through a little envelope, you know, a letterbox, a hole in, in, the, in the news editor's door, I, I asked a friend of mine to make a copy because I realized that, you know, all of this footage was just going to go basically into the bin. No one was going to see or hear of it, and that was going to be the end of the story. And I was quite fed up with that. And um, so a mate of mine, he made me a copy of the tape and I put the original in the little letterbox and uh, I promptly went back home and uh, waited to see, you know, whether they were going to use that story. And sure enough, nothing was on the telly that night. And um, so I'd made a a huge decision then that uh, I was going to take the copy that I'd made and I was going to make it available to to the foreign, um, the foreign media, in particular to the BBC. And uh, I walked into their offices and um, I handed over the tape. I explained who I was and what the footage was about. And they were absolutely amazed because obviously all of their footage had been destroyed uh, by the security police. And um, they were absolutely delighted and, and um, promptly took the tape and, and uh, fed it off to the UK. And as you can imagine, um, you know, in today's terms, it, it went viral. It went absolutely viral. It was the only footage. Um, it was, uh, you know, all the evidence um, of the police brutality was on the tapes. The, uh, uh, you know, I'd got shots of um, tear gas and, and, and live ammunition being fired into the crowds. Um, if I'm not mistaken, another two or three people were killed on the day, killed um, while, you know, at the funeral procession. 
Um, anyway, yeah, that all, that footage went viral, and um, it, it didn't take them too long to to realize, uh, you know, who the cameraman was and where the, the pictures had come from. And uh, yeah, that that cut my my career at the BBC um, quite short. And at I, SABC. At, SA, at SABC, cut my career really short there. And um, yeah, I, I find myself. Um, Did they fire you? Yeah, well, it was kind of. It wasn't really a firing because they would. They, I think they realised that there would have been a massive backlash uh, in terms of, um, you know, stories in the media. Uh, not that they'd particularly worry about that, but uh, they made it very clear that um, you know my time at the SABC had come to an abrupt end, and that um, I should look for work elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but presumably yeah. uh, that gave you a good in with the BBC, did it? Is that how you got started in the Beeb, or was it a different story? Yeah, well look, obviously, um, yeah, I, I got a foot in the front door. Um, there were already uh, cameramen contracted and working for the BBC here in, in South Africa and across the continent. Um, but yeah, I got to um, you know know a couple of the people and and meet the, the guys that were running um, the the bureau in in Johannesburg at the time, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was um, you know two or three weeks later, I got a call and um, they had clearly heard that I'd lost my job at at the SABC and and was jobless, and. Um, they offered me a couple of days freelance work. And yeah, you know, I took it with open arms and, and um, one thing led to another. And uh, the next minute I was on their books, um, getting uh, frequent work, which was great. And uh, yeah, you know, it just progressed from there. And basically, um, as I say, if, if I look back now, you know, 35 odd years um, working for the Beeb, it's, um, yeah, it's been a, a long haul. Been and a long what, haul. Was, what, was, what was it like in those days, you know, during apartheid, it must have been pretty relentless to be based here as a cameraman. Can you sort of give us a sense of what the average sort of day or week would entail in terms of where you would go, how the stories would play out, what sort of shots you would get and how dangerous it was? Yeah, I mean, danger-wise, fully, you know, absolutely um, every single day uh, was, was dangerous, was life-threatening, you know, to, to be honest. Um, yeah, you know, we, we'd come in the mornings, we'd, we'd get in quite early, we'd want to get into the townships um, because the earlier you got in, um, the, you know, the less harassment you would have got from the police because they would have, you know, either doing a shift change or decide to get in a little bit later. And um, the, the violence was always slightly less in the early hours of the morning. So, uh, yeah, we would do the breakfast run and we would be in the office by three, four o'clock in the morning uh, prepping ourselves, getting our um, every day, every every day, basically wow. when it was really going down. And um, look, there were days when it was quiet and we knew we didn't have to go in. But when there had been violence, uh, whether it had been with um, security forces or um, factional fighting um, between um, Inkata Freedom Party and the ANC, um, yeah, you know, the earlier you got in there, the better. And we, we used to call it the body run, actually, because um, Inevitably, somewhere along the way, you would you would come across um, bodies that were lying on the streets, people that had been killed the previous night. Um, necklacing was, um, you know, um, be- became you know one of the ways of uh, of torturing and and ultimately killing your your opponents or your enemies. So, just for anyone who doesn't know, that's basically putting a tie around someone's neck and setting it on fire. Isn't Correct. It? Yeah. So they w- they would capture you. A huge big tie would be uh, forced over your your shoulders and your arms, and so literally. 
it was almost like a huge big handcuff you know you, you would become sort of immobile and you wouldn't be able to 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 move around and uh, you would um, then get given a joint to smoke often um, was the trademark a marijuana joint and uh, while you were smoking that they would um, they would come around and slowly you know the crowds would get bigger and bigger and then uh, inevitably they would uh, douse you with fuel and um, and set you alight and um, yeah so you know it was th those were the sorts of things that we we were exposed to um, almost on a daily basis covering covering the stories uh, in in the townships and um, yeah you know it was uh, I still remember you know vividly today you know some of those images that obviously uh, one never forgets and um, um, but yeah you, you became really hardened to it uh, you you knew what to expect which was you know slightly easier you knew that you were going to get in there that you were going to see you know a lot of dead people you knew that you were going to be confronted by angry youths um, carrying machetes or spears or, or um, you know petrol bombs uh, and then um, on the outskirts you were going to be confronted with security forces and, and you would have to somehow um, either negotiate your way through the, the roadblocks or if, if you, you knew the area well enough uh, you would you'd take a back road and try and avoid them altogether because inevitably they would, um, they would stop you, harass you, often they would remove cassettes from your cameras uh, ask you questions, intimidate you, threaten you with arrest, and obviously, if it, if if uh, the country was uh, under the state of emergency, they had these superpowers that they could literally do whatever they wanted. And um, yeah, so it was uh, scary times. And I mean, there's parts of the world, obviously, where that sort of rubbish, you know, still happens, and people still get treated like shit, and there's still roadblocks and security police. What advice from those days, from your experience, would you? Would you pass on to maybe young cameramen, young filmmakers now, you know, things that you learned back then about, you know, how to sort of stay safe, you know, how to talk at roadblocks, you know, where to sort of hide tapes, you know, well, obviously now it would be cards, but, you know, same principle. Is there any advice you'd sort of pass on to people now in, this, in similar situations? Yeah, I, I think first off, um, obviously you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't want to venture into an area that you weren't familiar with. And so if you were having to go into an area that you possibly hadn't been before, uh, I would suggest that you get hold of local communities, uh, get hold of um, people that are familiar with the area, that are recognizable in the area, that, that um, would be able to guide you through uh, those areas and possibly um, you know, look after your safety. You're only um, as good as your fixer, right? You're only as good as your fixer, and um, you know, local knowledge is um, you know something that uh, I've relied on um, my entire career. Um, if you're not sure, get a hold of someone who's local, and and they're going to be able to not only keep you safe but get you to speak to the right people, take you to the right areas, that type of thing. I guess you know the, the long and the short of it is, um, you, if you, you you don't want to be the only guy you know on the street corner. Um, you don't want to be the only vehicle driving down a road where there's, you know, possible, uh, you know, um, hijacking or attacks, you know, if there's youths hanging around and they're ready to, you know, lob a couple of petrol bombs at you or rocks or whatever the case is. Um, you don't want to be left sort of, um, you know, out, you don't want to expose yourself anymore to, to any of the dangers that are around there. So I guess that, uh, you know, it's, you've got to be careful wherever you go these days. And, uh, you know, you, you can uh, come around a corner and you can be confronted with a situation. 
um, and you often have to make um, your decision immediately whether to approach cautiously, stop, turn around, whatever the case is. And uh, I, I guess once you've been doing it for as long as you and I have, uh, you, you do get. I'm not as old as Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you get a. You, you do get a bit of a sixth sense um, uh, about um, how to read a situation, whether it is a dangerous situation or whether you can approach with caution and actually um, get a great story from some of these guys when you have the right approach. I think if you barge in there like a bull in a china shop, um, yeah, you, you, you're going to get you know the similar reaction back to you. Whereas... Um, if you go in a bit more cautiously, um, you know, waving your hands in a friendly manner, windows open, happy to climb out of your vehicle when you feel it's safe enough, approach the guys, introduce yourself, shake hands, greet people in a, in a respectable manner, then you will get often um, similar response and they will, um, they will take to you and they will look after you and they will t- tell you their stories. But uh, quite often, you know, if, if you go into a situation and you barge yourself in and uh, you start filming and throwing the camera around without asking permission from the guys to film, I mean, you know, I don't like it when someone sticks a camera in my face. So who are we to, to just think that we uh, can you know, get into a township and take a camera out and start filming people on the side of the road, especially when they're angered? And so, yeah, always, you know, I guess it's that delicate balance um, of uh, softly, softly approach. Um, speak to your people first. You know, get permission to to come in and film. Tell them what you're doing. Tell them who you are, where you're from, and uh, you'll you'll get a much more sort of open-handed approach as opposed to barging in, thinking, "Hang on, I just want to get a couple of pictures here and get the hell out, and and I don't give a shit about anyone." Um, Which yeah. sadly a lot of people do. Yeah, uh, and you know, often what happens it's uh, you know, um, you know, that's often the reputation that we are left with, and uh, you, you get a whole bunch of um, crews coming into a story that don't particularly, you know, have the same attitude as we might, because you know, we, we're if you're a local journalist and uh, you're going into a situation, you've got to go back tomorrow, you've got to go back there next week, you've got to go back there next month, and so. Um, unlike um, other journos who might just be in here for one story, come in here and and leave a trail of dirt behind them that we have to face tomorrow when you go into that same story. And they'll go, oh, you you guys were here yesterday and they said they weren't going to film our faces and we've seen we all over TV and this and that. And so, yeah, you know, it it works in both ways. But I I guess uh, if that answers your question, softly, softly. And... um, you know, local knowledge is uh, priority. Yeah, I think I agree with all of that. You know, I've always said you're only as good as your fixer. You know, a good fixer will uh, it will, will make or break a filming expedition, won't they? And, and also I agree with you as well that that sort of softly, softly approach, I much prefer it. You know, get out at a roadblock, greet people, you know, shake hands. And often I find, and I don't know if you're the same, even if I don't speak the language, I'll point at my camera and I'll make a thumbs up and sort of, you know, look at them and see if they give me the thumbs up back and say, yeah, you know, or, or they'll say, no. And, you know, absolutely, and you go, absolutely. You know, I mean, we, we could, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in, the, in the dirty days of apartheid, um, a young white journalist or cameraman moving around the townships in unarmed, ve- you know, un- unmarked vehicles. I could just be, you know, getting out the vehicle, opening my boot up and, and, and removing an AK-47 and opening fire in these guys. They don't know who I am. 
they might never have seen me before. And so, yeah, you know, that again, that, that approach, you know, you get up and exactly as you say, you know, identify yourself, hold the camera up. This is who I am. I'm not a security policeman. I'm not a soldier. I'm a journalist. I'm here to listen to you. I'm here to tell your story. If you're prepared to talk to us, fantastic. Let's get it on. Um, so yeah, all of those things are, are of, of huge uh, importance when, you, when you're in those hostile environments. And then so after covering apartheid uh, right up until the end, um, your remit sort of changed to a, you know, one that covered all of sub-Saharan Africa. I, I guess that experience you'd had really stood you in good stead for, for those years following. Yeah, um, I, I'd say it does. I guess um, in particular, I would think that, you know, the opinion that, that management often have is that the more streetwise you are, the more unlikely it is that you're going to, you know, get yourself shot up or, you know, end up in a, in a, in a fight or, or whatever the case is. So, yeah, I, I guess, you know, having covered, you know, uh, those types of stories, you, you do, you know, gain huge amounts of experience which then would allow you to, not allow you, but would, would put you in good stead to, to go and cover you know, bigger and more horrible wars, which is exactly what happened after the, covering the, the unrest in the townships, um, when Africa opened up for us to go and travel. Uh, going into full-on wars, I covered the Mozambican War, uh, I covered the Angolan War, and uh, and then slowly progressed up into the Great Lakes region where you know we were having to deal with genocide in Rwanda, and um, the the uh, guerrilla wars up in Liberia and Sierra Leone and, and elsewhere. So I guess what happens is um, you, you 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 basically you know management are happy in sending out people where they understand that you are going to keep yourself alive. You, you're not going to get shot up. Um, you are going to be able to work as a team under a very, very difficult working environment. And, um, yeah, so I, I guess, you know, you, you sort of get tagged along the way. And, um, you know, I, I think for a long time, you know, th there was a huge um, a adrenaline rush and there was a huge challenge. Um, what, what memories stand out for you from that, you know, that period of the sort of mid to late 90s where you were going from war to war to war? Is there, is there any sort of standout memories, both good or bad? Yeah, I guess there's both. Eh? The, I, I would say that the good memories are whenever we used to go and cover a war, the good memories would be when you went back six months or a year later and, and you kind of got the feeling that you had something to do with a possible ceasefire because often what happens is decision makers where they be in in the US or the UK or in Africa often would uh, be guided uh, by our footage because obviously they can't go into a war zone so um, they would obviously be um, strongly guided by a lot of our coverage of these war zones and um, uh, and would have hopefully been able to put pressure on uh, warlords or um, countries or whoever that you know w was was forcing on the war to put pressure on them to to ceasefire or to come around a negotiation table and discuss and and, and have a ceasefire. So the, the good the good memories was always when you went back to these kind of um, areas and you would see that life has become back uh, to normal. Um, and you know the, the markets are open, the hotels are open, businesses are open, uh, and life would go on as normal. 
the, the, the bad side is when you go back year after year after year and nothing has changed. You go back to these uh, towns and villages and areas where you're covering the wars and people are worse off, uh, more people are, are, are dying. Um, and often around areas where there were uh, minerals, you know, blood diamonds, for example, you know, thinking of Angola, Sierra Leone, where those wars were in particular long lasting. And, um, you know, despite, you know, huge international pressures, there was always someone fueling the fire somewhere, somehow. And those wars just seemed to carry on. And um, quite depressing, really, when you go back a year later and you feel that you could actually pull out the archive and run the same piece that you ran a year ago. And I think, you know, you're nodding. You agree that, you know, that's often the case on this continent, whereby I could say, you know, especially, you know, in the Darfur region that I, I covered, you know, over a, a good five or, or eight years, um, that, um, you know, myself and Hilary Anderson, who was the correspondent that I, that I used to travel up there with, she often used to flick me an email saying, Glenn, we can run the same package that we ran, you know, four years ago. It's still relevant today. So <laughs> nothing's changed. Sad, and it's really, really sad. And it, it's those, those are the sorts of stories that, um, those, those are the, the sad, the sad images of, of war and destruction um, that, that stay with you for a long time. So th there's good and bad, you know, and um, yeah, it's, um, but I've got to say, you know, overall, um, the, the 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 sort of effects and um, what's the word I'm I'm looking for the um, the influence that that a lot of our stories used to have on these wars the satisfaction the the, the most satisfaction that I used to get from covering these types of stories was going back and meeting people that we had met prior maybe a year ago that they're still around and they remember you and they approach you and they say, hey, BBC, how you guys remember? I was your fixer a year ago. And, um, and, and you see how life has just become normal again for these people. That has got to be one of the most rewarding things, I think, for me having the, the memories anyway, going back to an area that I covered, which used to be, you know, under, under the gun and is now, you know, back running as, as a normal society. again. it's a fantastic feeling, really. And of all the stories you've covered in Africa, which one has sort of stayed with you the longest? You know, which one, when you think of your years, do you think, yeah, gosh, that was, you know, that really was, you know, a big impact on my life or, you know, I, I know you've covered a lot of conflict, but it doesn't necessarily have to be conflict, you know. Is there any stories that have really stayed with you, either positively or negatively? Yeah, I guess the, the, the first one that comes to mind has got to be the genocide in Rwanda. I mean, it was just massive. And um, yeah, we were there for a long time. And uh, unlike a lot of the other news crews that were covering the genocide, they were possibly based out of uh, Nairobi or in Tebi, uh, areas like that where they can literally uh, fly in, uh, get onto the landing strip, jump onto the back of a pickup, go into the village, do a piece to camera, knock off a couple of interviews and fly out again um, to go and sit down to a nice three-course meal and a, a good couple of beers and have clean laundry in the afternoon. Unlike those, uh, myself and our team uh, that were, we were forming a panorama uh, documentary for the BBC and um, we, we were stuck in, in Rwanda and surrounding areas for a period of about six weeks uh, living out of two 4x4 vehicles, jerry cans, tin food, 
Um, and so, and then obviously, you know, covering, you know, a story like genocide is something that I, you know, uh, never, you know, never, I don't think you ever really recover. I think, you know, if anyone has to say, oh, you know, you recovered that when you were kind of absolutely fine afterwards, you know, there are images and smells and thoughts and uh, that one will never forget. And um, obviously covering the genocide and then after the genocide having to go back time and time and time again, um, you know, sort of between the period of um, uh, six or eight years covering the whole region, um, you know, was was a hell of a thing. And uh, it takes its toll. Uh, it's, it's definitely one that, that stands out for me. Um, there are obviously, you know, dozens of other, you know, fantastic stories that I've covered uh, across the continent. Um, I was fortunate to be um, uh, in Berlin when they started breaking down the wall. And uh, one of my first really, really huge big stories. And, and that was, you know, the euphoria around something like that was wow. how did you end up in berlin yeah you know it was, it, it was it was off my patch and i was actually working for a production company outside of news and uh, we had been uh, given a, a couple of stories to go and do and uh, it so happened that while we were there um it, it started developing as a big story and uh, we decided to stick it out we were in berlin for a month and um I can proudly say that I chipped off my own little bit of graffiti off the Berlin Wall, and I have it <laughs> oh, framed. Course. I have it framed in my in my bedroom, um, and yeah. So um, you know that those are the sort of big stories that really um, you know make history. I guess when we look back, and and I often say, you know, my kids ask me, Dad, what are you doing? What stories are you doing? And I say, Yeah, this is what I'm doing, and it's going to be in your history books one day. You know, your your kids are going to be learning that the, the, the stuff that I'm filming today for the BBC is going to be history. And uh, your kids will one day, you know, be questioned about this. You know, this, this is going to be in their history books. So it's a nice way of looking um, at it. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, someone once said to me, I don't know if they'd stolen it from somewhere else, but it was nice. He said, as cameraman or as journalist, we don't necessarily make history, but we have a front row seat. Absolutely. I mean, you know, as a career, as a, as a cameraman, you've got that front row seat and uh, you, 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 you've seen firsthand, um, you know, stories that develop across our, our, our continent. And, and uh, it is just uh, it is phenomenal to, to be in that type of position where you go out and you meet and deal with these people on, on a daily basis. And, and it's our job. It's our job to go and do that. And um, yeah, so I mean, there, there is another great story that I just need to tell you is um, when, when we were in uh, DRC Congo, uh, Kinshasa, and uh, the big changeover was happening and uh, Mobutu Sese Seko had, uh, uh, had taken flight and he had uh, been driven out to the airport and he was uh, out of the country and uh, the rebels, uh, the Kabilas of the world were, were arriving um, from the east and um, we had been under what we could often call hotel arrest uh, because we had been allowed into the country to come and cover the war, but the army and the security didn't want us roaming the streets and we would be under uh, a hotel arrest. And, um, so you couldn't go out at all? Couldn't, you couldn't leave the, the boundaries of the hotel. Could you at least get sort of shots from the rooftop and things? Yeah, we could. And, and uh, I'll just get into that. Oh. Basically, in the, in the one evening, um, we, would, we would go up, we would do sort of shifts on the top of the hotel roof and see if you could, you know, any, see any plumes of smoke or soldier movement on, on the streets. And um, 
we were we were taking artillery uh, was being fired in from from the the, the outskirts of Kinshasa in towards the the, the 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 capital and a munitions dump took a direct hit and um, it was one of the most spectacular <laughs> guy fox displays <laughs> i have oh ever seen in my life wow. because this munitions dump just exploded and uh, yeah i mean luckily it was probably about four or five kilometers away from us um, but the 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 sky just lit up with um, with explosives and rockets and all sorts of munitions firing off and ricocheting off buildings and fires starting all over the place where this shit was landing and it was just an absolute spectacle to sit in and <laughs> it was uh, one of the, the the stories that I tell my kids quite often. Is, so as a um, cameraman that's sort of the dream isn't it you know obviously it's horrific if people die but amazing to be sat there not expecting to get much and suddenly you see that. Yeah I mean it, the sky lit up and as you can imagine a huge ammunition dump exploding and uh, you know we, we often see some of these Guy Fox factories, you know, that, that catch a light and explode and similar to that. And uh, yeah, uh, just, you know, one of the, one of the memories that, that come to mind. And for those who don't know, Glenn's still working. He's still working most days, um, but you're not traveling as much as you used to. Do, do you miss it or are you glad to sort of spend more time covering domestic stories? Yeah, uh, the, I would say there's probably certain stories that I do miss. I, I don't particularly, um, you know, put my hand up for for the big ugly stories, meaning you know, famine, um, human pain and suffering. Um, you know, I hate covering funerals. Uh, if there's one thing that I would, you know, I would uh, make man- management aware of, and and they are, is that I never, ever, ever want to have to go and cover another funeral in my life. It's got to be for me and for a lot of cameramen, I guess. The worst situation is you're going to a funeral, you've got people who are mourning over the death of a family member or a friend or a colleague, and we are having to go and stick our cameras in their faces. Um, that is one thing that I don't appreciate. And um, yeah, basically... I mean, even um, if they want you there, you still feel a bit of a vulture, don't you? Absolutely, you know, so yeah, most definitely. So there, there, there's a few stories that I, I, I'd, I'd say, yep, yeah, thank you I'd take those and there's probably a lot more now that I'd say no thank you um, I would much rather much rather be filming a sunset over the Kalahari <laughs> desert <laughs> and, and, and having a good old meal with a couple of bushmen in their village than having to worry about you know being shot at or you know sniper fired or you know landed up in a, in a minefield uh, and stuff like that so yeah I, I think what happens is the older you get, you know, the more precious life obviously becomes. I'm a family man like yourself and uh, would, would not want to, um, you know, be coming back home in a, in a black bag. And so I think what happens is, you know, eventually um, you kind of say, yeah, it's time, it's time to, to let uh, some of the younger, more braver guys get out there and do their stuff and win some awards and, uh, you know, um, install their careers. Uh, and I think for me, um, I find myself in a situation now where I'm doing um, fantastic little uh, stories for Focus on Africa on the BBC. Um, every now and again, we do a little bit of news gathering. Um, I work with a fantastic team. And um, 
Yeah, you know, I, I think what's important for me is that I had to make sure that my work was still rewarding. I think the day that you wake up in the morning and you say, oh, God, I really do, I've got to go to the office. I think then, yeah, time to, you know, hang up the gloves and, and uh, take up golf, you know, professional golf or whatever. So I think I, I'm fortunate that after as many years as I've been in the industry, that I'm still in the industry, I'm not divorced, I'm not suicidal, I'm not an alcoholic, I'm not a drug abuser. Uh, all of those things that I've mentioned are um, a reality in our industry. Uh, and especially when you're covering hostile environments where death and destruction and violence um, is, a, is a part of daily living. You cannot say that you come out of those types of stories unscathed. Uh, and quite often, unfortunately, uh, it can destroy family life and marriages and, and all sorts of things. And I think I've got to say that I'm fortunate that I'm still sane. And barely. I, barely. <laughs> and um, some would say uh, and, and some would disagree. But uh, I think what's important for me is that when I wake up in the morning, I'm still happy to go and pick up my camera. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's that's the best thing about this career, isn't it? If you can still wake up every day and be enthusiastic, then that's pretty good. Proper. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, Glenn and I have a Christmas lunch to go to, so I think we'll wrap it up there, mate. Thanks yeah, a lot. Damn right, thank you. So I'm sure you'll agree that was fascinating stuff. For those of you who don't know, I've worked alongside Glenn for a number of years, and I actually owe my current life in South Africa to him in many ways. He hurt his shoulder, took three months off, and I flew down from London to cover for him and never looked back. I'm still here. Can't get rid of me that easily, Glenn. Um, so anyway, thanks again to Glenn. Now, please do leave a review. It really helps. Uh, I don't actually have many reviews of the podcast, which is quite sad. So if you are a cameraman or camera person and you're interested in keeping the show going, please do support me, do spread the word, and do write a review. You can also go to my website, imagejunkies.net, uh, and subscribe to the newsletter there if, if you fancy, and get your free ebook, 50, 50 Life Saving Travel Tips for Journalists. Anyway, guys, I'll see you next week when I'm back with the brilliant Stuart Pittman, aka At Lenslinger, an American news photographer, and another great interview. All right, take care.